So this morning I'd like to continue with the exploration of the four truths, the so-called four ennobling truths that um, are often said to be ennobling because they permit us to, they permit our lives to be lives of practice and transformation rather than simply acting blindly because of the forces of the past. And that's said to ennoble us, that's said to ennoble our lives, you might say to dignify our lives so we're not simply, as it were, at the mercy of our past conditioning. And that's, that's one way to think of why the term uh, noble is used. So today I want to review some where we've been and then, do, and then focus on the third and fourth truth. This is the third session with the four truths. And I was thinking at first that it would be the last, but then I talked to a friend and said, well, we're doing the four truths. We're having three sessions on the four truths. I said, three? <laughs> and, but, I, but I think there are other reasons as well. Uh, but, so the first session, we had a, an overview of the four truths and encouraged a number of ways to practice with the four truths. Uh, and many of us have given some attention in the last weeks to how do we bring this into our lives? How do we use this as a guidance for practice? And how many people have continued to give attention in the last week to, to the four truths? That'd be great. I'll, I'll encourage that because I think I'm going to do one more week and then we'll, then we'll move on to, to other themes. Um, then in the second session, last time, we particularly looked at the first and second truth, the truth of dukkha or, as it's usually translated, suffering, and the, the cause of that suffering. And so today I'd like to review some of that, but then give uh, primary emphasis on the third and fourth truth, which, is, which are the truths. And they're often called truths because they can be, in some ways, directly and experientially realized, not truths as sort of canonical beliefs that we should simply follow, but truths that can be realized, explored, experientially um, penetrated, understood. And then leave some time also to talk about what we've been exploring in our own practice. And, and as before, I'll intend to give some, uh, some suggestions, and maybe we can also share um, suggestions from, from our group as a community, about how to practice the, these truths, how to use these truths as, as a focus. So first I'd like to again do a guided reflection. Reflect on how you might have brought working with these truths into your life in the last week. And if you didn't, if you're here and you weren't here last time, reflect on a situation, particularly where there might be some difficulty or suffering, some unpleasant experiences. And our work with these four truths are to first, the first truth being to acknowledge that there's suffering, there's dukkha, and to use the Pali word, and I'll again come back later and say more what that means, that there's some off-center, unsatisfactory quality that we notice in our lives, sometimes small, sometimes larger. 
Secondly, that, there, that the primary cause or the primal cause of such suffering is some kind of compulsive grasping or pushing away. This is, this is the teaching of the Buddha. At its root, there's some kind of reactivity, resistance. And the third truth, that some kind of peace and freedom is possible and the fourth truth being the practical way to get there, to realize that, that freedom, that peace. And so, for ourselves, if we were exploring, we can look back and say, is there a way that I can look at a given, particularly a given moment of difficulty or suffering, perhaps with an unpleasant experience, challenging experience, Can I reflect on how either I did work with that experience using these four guidelines or how I might work with such an experience? Imagining, reflecting on a particular experience. For myself, I reflected a lot. uh, Since I last saw you, I've done acupuncture twice. And I was reflecting on how I can let go of the sensation of needles squirming around in my body. <laughs> so I'll talk, maybe talk more about that later. So, but that was, that was my practice. That was one of my areas of practice. So there might be some for you, might be an interpersonal difficulty, a personal challenge, reflecting on something in the world, and so forth. How to reflect on that so that you notice the nature of the suffering, open to it, as you stay with it, begin to see, is there a cause of that suffering? Particularly the quality of compulsive or unconscious grasping or pushing away. And is there a way that I can, in a way, release that grasping or pushing away and come to peace? As it were, let go of the cause of the suffering. And fourthly, how have I been able to do that and how might I do that? Let's just take a little bit of time for that reflection. Choosing an area where there has been some challenge or difficulty or suffering.
So we'll come back to those reflections in a little while. Um, First to say a little bit further about the first two truths and and indeed about the, the four truths. It provides a powerful focus for our practice. Again, it's the in, in some ways, the central teaching of the Buddha, the first teaching that he gave. The Buddha's, one of the Buddha's main disciples, Sariputra, talked about the centrality of the four truths in this way. He said that they were a kind of a way to focus how to act skillfully in the present moment, that this becomes a, um, a framework that if we keep awareness of it, helps us to um, live our lives with more skill, more wisdom, more, more openness. And this is what Sariputta said. Friends, just as the footprints of all legged animals are encompassed by the footprint of an elephant, and the elephant's footprint is reckoned the foremost among them in terms of size, in the same way, all skillful qualities are gathered under the Four Noble Truths. So, using the metaphor of an elephant's footprint may not be what you use in your daily life that much, but this was very central at the time of the Buddha. So he said, it's, so think of it as something like, use a metaphor that's central for you, or that points to what's primary. I don't know what that would be... Um, just like the internet connects us with all <laughs> all that there is, so the four truths. <laughs> Perhaps they're better metaphors, but that's what came to mind. Uh, so he says, all skillful qualities are gathered under the four noble truths, just like the elephant's footprint. Under which four? Under the noble truth of dukkha, under the noble truth of the origination of dukkha, where it comes from, under the noble truth of the cessation of dukkha, and under the noble truth of the path of practice leading to the cessation of dukkha. In terms of the first and second truths, I've liked to use, I've liked to use this teaching, which, which I've mentioned, the teaching of the two arrows, where it's said we're all shot with the arrow of unpleasant experiences, of painful experiences that we all have physical difficulties, illnesses sometimes have emotional difficulties. And the Buddha said that the first arrow is something we all have. And it's the aim of our practice is not to get rid of the first arrow, but he said that, there, that we customarily, in a conditioned way, shoot a second arrow in a misguided attempt to heal the pain of the first arrow. And we shoot that second arrow at ourselves and others. And that's the arrow of reactivity. It's the arrow in which we um, react to, um, let's say, a sarcastic comment that comes our way, and we immediately react back and make a sarcastic comment in response, as if that would heal, take care of the first sarcastic comment. It's a kind of, we do it thinking that it will protect us. Of course, what typically happens goes around in circles, right? And in fact, what we thought was protective, what we thought was shooting the second arrow to get rid of the first arrow, in fact, keeps the arrows being shot. 
And that this is, this is at the core of the Buddha's teaching. And to me, this is a skillful way to understand the, uh, what suffering is, because suffering is not the same as simply having an unpleasant experience. It's not the same as having a painful experience, but rather the suffering is the reactivity. Because we're not, you know, we, if we wanted to get rid of all pleasant, unpleasant experiences, we couldn't do that. You know, and the Buddha, I think, isn't saying that we should, but we can work on our tendencies to be reactive. And so the Buddha often says that um, acting with greed or hatred or delusion in order to get rid of hate, greed, hatred, and delusion never works. That when we encounter the first arrow, we have to learn how not to shoot the second arrow. In another context, he said, violence never ends by violence. Violence only ends by love. This is an eternal law. It's really a version of the two arrows, isn't it? And so that example can make it clear that this teaching is relevant for our own personal experience, it's relevant for interpersonal experience, and it's relevant for our collective social experience. And in fact, you know, I think it's the very same teaching that we find in the work of Gandhi and King. You know, that they are really giving a version of the teaching of the two arrows, the teaching of the first two truths. And I thought I would just read that this is what King said. The ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy, just, just like the second arrow. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence, you murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. And so that's the more social interpretation of that. Okay. It's, a, it's a powerful statement, isn't it? The ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral, begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence you murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. It's another version of the teaching of the first and second truth. In fact, I, I would say all the all the truths. You know, I brought in very for me a very another very powerful social expression of these first two truths. It's uh, very much of the first of the of the two arrows. Some of you know the well. This is from the time of violence in the former Yugoslavia, and this is an image of the. National Library of Sarajevo, which was destroyed by bombs. And there was a cellist named Vedran Smolovich who took it as his duty to keep performing even in the midst of war. You could say that he's refusing to shoot the second arrow and in fact bringing in the third truth. 
And this is an image of him in the area of the destroyed National Library preparing to play his cello in in an effort to really keep people's minds um, available to the possibility of peace and freedom. You could say in Buddhist terms that he was deliberately not shooting the second arrow and pointing and in fact manifesting the third truth, the possibility of freedom, even amidst very extreme circumstances. So it's a very, very powerful expression of, of this truth. And so last time we explored some ways to work with, um, with difficult experiences. And in fact, you know, one, one thing that's been interesting to me in reflecting on these four truths is that, interestingly, if you think about it, the first truth is talked about as the truth of suffering. And so there's a, there's a kind of a focus on unpleasant experiences because it's as it were we, we um, learn about suffering, especially with difficult experiences. But as we go more deeply, I think we can see, and this is one of the subtleties of this teaching, we could see that there's actually suffering in, there can be suffering in relation to pleasant experiences as well. That when we are in fact grasping after the pleasant, there's a kind of suffering, there's a lack of peace, there's a lack of uh, just resting. And so it's interesting for me that the first truth is framed in terms of the unpleasant, but the second truth is framed in terms of grabbing after the pleasant. And then, has that ever puzzled you? <laughs> it, it's an interesting one, isn't it? You know, it's that, uh, what it points to, I believe, is that the first and second truths, in their deeper or more subtle meaning, is really about reactivity to anything in the present moment which can be either pleasant or unpleasant, that there's actually suffering whenever there's reactivity. And reactivity can mean grabbing hold of the pleasant as well as pushing away the unpleasant. And that's, um, that's, that's fascinating to me, so that we could actually frame the... Uh, we could frame, I think, the first truth as it's done when the Buddha talks about the two arrows more in terms of reactivity than in terms of simply having unpleasant experiences. It's the unpleasant experiences that typically tell us that they're suffering. But there actually can be a lot of suffering even when we have pleasant things around us. Anyone who's, you know, I, I discovered this when I was in college and I became friends with people who were very, very wealthy and started to go to their houses and discovered all the, you know, a lot of suffering. <laughs> you know. <laughs> You know, uh, that's another story. <laughs> but it was, it was, I, was, I was amazed, you know. People have butlers and they're, they're unhappy. <laughs> so, um, but, then the, but then the second truth, the way the Buddha frames it, he frames it in terms that the cause of suffering is this grasping after the pleasant, which it was just interesting because he just talked about the First truth is being related to the pleasant. Well, how, is, how does grasping after the pleasant relate to the suffering in relation to the unpleasant? And again, I think that 
for me, I would interpret this as more, this is his teaching tool. This is, he's, he's, he's teaching by pointing to sort of the grossest manifestations. The grossest manifestation of suffering is when we have to deal with the unpleasant. But we could actually also see that there's suffering of a more subtle nature in relation to the pleasant. We just don't pick up on that so much, right? We don't notice that so much. In the same way, we could see that pushing away the unpleasant is the flip side of grabbing hold of the pleasant. That they're really, in some ways, the same thing. We can't have a grabbing hold of the pleasant pleasant, unless we, in some ways, are unsatisfied with what's there in the present, in some ways dissatisfied. So that's, that's interesting for me. Please. Bottom line is the change. Yeah. Whether, no matter from what direction to what direction. Yeah. Really challenging. Yeah, that to just to just to be with the present moment, and you know, we this happens, and that's we find that unpleasant. We want to change it, or we find this is uh, pleasant, but I want more, so I'm going to change it. And so it's really what it's doing. It's really pointing us to the way that our normal conditioned way of being is not really very settled. There's not a deep quality of peace there. And it can manifest, it actually can manifest in three different directions. If we were really being comprehensive with these first two truths, we can say that it manifests either in relation to the pleasant, the unpleasant, or the neutral, if we would get more detailed. You know, and that our, our conditioned tendency in relation to the pleasant is what? It's to grab hold of it, want to keep it happening. In relation to the unpleasant, it's to push it away. And in relation to the neutral, it's to space out. And to just be, duh. <laughs> That's a Buddhist technical term. So, uh, and so it's, it's interesting, but in the way it's actually phrased, it's not quite so comprehensive. Because I think the Buddha was skillful, and he said, if I'm, quite, if I'm that comprehensive, people are going to get a little bit bored. I'll have to just cut to the chase. <laughs> That's my interpretation. But I think we've been doing this for a few weeks, so I think the subtleties are okay. Because <laughs> it actually can, can deepen it. Please. That's, that's um, a question I think might be good for discussion. Would you mind holding that till we, till we, for a little bit, and then we can come back to that? Because that's, that's a deep one. And maybe I'll anticipate some of a response to that. The third truth is really the Buddha's response to it. He says that there's a deep quality of peace that's possible. This is the third truth, that that there's there's, um, peace that's possible, that there's a freedom that's possible, and that somehow we get caught in these more superficial attempts to push away the unpleasant and grab hold of the pleasant. And in some ways we lose our bearings. We lose, um, we lose our access to what is the deepest kind of peace or understanding, and in some ways the deepest pleasure, you might say. Um, and so the Buddha says that we don't have to live with this kind of continual reactivity. And the third truth is about the quality of peace or freedom. It's really 
in, in that sense, um, an optimistic view of things, that we can actually not be continually driven by the reaching after the pleasant and pushing away the unpleasant. And there really are, I think, two meanings for this quality of peace or freedom. And, and in our own experience, it's something that we, can, that we can ask, what is it like when we're no longer grabbing hold or pushing away? including with something that's difficult. What is, it, what is it like to experience that, that quality of, of peace? Can we experience that in relation to, to the challenging situation which we might have identified you know, in, the, in the guided reflection? For the Buddha, I think two meanings. The first is the moment-to-moment experience of freedom from attachment or freedom from compulsion. You know, that we can be in the moment and can have a peace even if something challenging is happening. And this is something that we access, that we can access through our own inner work, through our meditation. You know, I was thinking for myself, one of the most interesting and very surprising manifestations of this came during a longer retreat I was at. And I was, had been doing enough practice so that I remember one morning, I hadn't slept well. I was irritable. My body was not having very pleasant experiences. And surprisingly, I was extremely content. There was a kind of peace. I was happy. There was, there was a kind of happiness that was deeper than the momentary flow of pleasant and unpleasant. That's what I think the Buddha is talking about. Um, there's something, there's something that we can have access to that's deeper than that flux. Because if, if, if our happiness was dependent on that flux, then we'd be at the mercy of conditions. And the Buddha is saying that that's not the final word on human experience, that we don't have to be at the mercy of what's happening externally or even what's happening internally in terms of particular emotions or thoughts or so forth. Radical idea, isn't it? I mean, it's not what we were brought up with generally. We we're generally brought up with the notion that we should look for our happiness in having things go well, externally and internally. The second meaning of this third truth is what the Buddha talked about as nibbana or nirvana, which is the more, as it were, stabilized and deeper quality of this peace. I wanted to read a few passages where the Buddha talks about this. This Nibbana, Nibbana is the Pali word, Nirvana is the word in Sanskrit that we, we use more often. It is the complete cessation of this compulsive thirst or grasping, giving it up, renouncing it, emancipation from it. What is the unconditioned? It is the extinction, it is the extinction of compulsive attachment, the extinction of greed, of hatred, the extinction of delusion. This is called the unconditioned. He 
he says, O practitioners, there is the unborn, the ungrown, the unconditioned. Were there not the unborn, the ungrown, and the unconditioned, there would be no escape for the born, grown, and conditioned. Since there is the unborn, ungrown, and unconditioned, so there is escape for the born, the grown, and conditioned. And it's this latter quality of the peace or freedom is the mysterious quality. We might say that it's similar to what's identified as the sacred in other traditions. You know, that if you look at the Buddha's description of the experience of nirvana, it's very similar to what you might find in the mystics of other traditions. When they talk about, they might talk about God or the sacred or whatever. Very, very similar. What's interesting in the practice that we do is that there seems to be a connection between awareness or mindfulness and the quality of freedom. That it's in the use of awareness that we tap into something that in a sense is wider than the conditioned experience. That when I can be mindful of my own irritation or that um, tiredness that I was describing in my own experience, there's a way that the mindfulness or the awareness can be broader, if you use that metaphor, or deeper than the stimulus itself. That I can be mindful of a knee pain and there's something in there that's not caught up in the knee pain when I can be mindful or aware. So among many teachers, they point to mindfulness or awareness as being a very ordinary quality of our experience that in many ways is akin to the sacred, that is akin to the, um, to even to nirvana or nibbana. And this is talked about, uh, interestingly, in many, many different traditions. And so I wanted to read you something from uh, one of the great teachers in this particular lineage, Achan Sumedho, who lives in England, an American, who's, who comes here about uh, once every year or two. And how many people have met Achan Sumedho? Some of you have. He likes to talk about awareness in this way. This is what he says. Awareness is your refuge. Awareness of the changingness of feelings, of attitudes, of moods, of material change and emotional change. Stay with this awareness because because it's a refuge that is indestructible. It's not something that changes. It's a refuge you can trust in. This refuge is not something that you create. It's not a creation. It's very practical and very simple, but easily overlooked or not noticed. When you're mindful, just you're beginning to notice. And then he has a hand sign that Sylvia likes a lot. She's probably, she says it a lot. It's like this. I'm mindful of this happening. I'm mindful of irritation or happiness or despair. It's like this. It's like this. <laughs> That's all. And this is, for Achan Sumedho, this awareness starts to give us access to this third truth. It's in the mindfulness that we, in a way, have something that's broader or larger than any conditioned experience, than any unpleasant or pleasant experience. And that's, I think, why we use mindfulness as this primary tool to look at experience. It both is a very immediate, practical, everyday tool, but in a deep sense, it also gives us access 
to the deeper qualities of our minds. It's also very fundamental in some of the Tibetan teachings. I wanted just to read you a few passages. This is from the tradition of Dzogchen, which is, which is a Tibetan teaching which particularly points to the very nature of awareness as being like a chansamedo, a kind of refuge. This is a, a contemporary Tibetan teacher named Nyosho Ken, quoting one of the great teachers in his lineage. He says, intrinsic, intrinsic awareness itself, that is the absolute guru, the ultimate truth. By resting naturally in awareness beyond fixation, and by fixation we could think of beyond pushing away the unpleasant and grabbing hold of the pleasant, by resting in awareness beyond fixation, I rest in that inherently free and perfectly innate mind of the Buddha. I take refuge there, very much like a Chansameda. Another place he says, this experience of the natural state of the luminous, innate, great perfection of awareness implies, and this he uses a little bit of violent language, he implies the annihilation, the crashing into dust of all forms of self-clinging and duality, of clinging to the concrete reality of things, their appearances. So this experience of awareness, he says, is a way to move beyond that quality of fixation. And, and you know, that's a kind of a um, highfalutin way of just saying, when I stay with mindfulness of my knee pain or my uh, sadness, and I stay there, my awareness is bigger than my sadness or my knee pain. And there's something that it rests in, that it's, that we're not in, to use Buddhist language, we're not identified completely with the knee pain. There's something else that we can link to as part of our being. And that's really what's pointed to, I believe, with this third truth I have just one more expression of this, and then and I want to talk a little bit about the fourth truth. This is a poem from Rilke called Buddha in Glory. And I think he's pointing to the same quality of this third truth. This was written about over a hundred years ago, I think. Buddha in Glory, center of all centers, core of cores, almond self-enclosed and growing sweet, All this universe to the furthest stars and beyond them is your flesh, your fruit. Now you feel how nothing clings to you. Your vast shell reaches into endless space, and there the rich, thick fluids rise and flow, illuminated in your infinite peace. A billion stars go spinning through the night, blazing high above your head, but in you is the presence that will be when all the stars are dead. In you is the presence that will be when all the stars are dead. I think another kind of bowing to awareness as this mysterious, powerful quality that in a way links us, we might say, in this tradition, links us with the sacred. This very simple act of just being able to hear a bell has that quality of being very, very deep, very powerful, And so how to practice with the third truth to use mindfulness, to be present, sometimes is to access that third truth. Sometimes there needs to be an act of letting go, 
when we can be with some, you know, for me, if I could be with the acupuncture needles, which take a little while to get used to. I haven't done it for a long time, and they, I, don't hope, I don't mean to make you uncomfortable, but they put the needles in, and they very compassionate doctor, twist the needles around. There's something in me which doesn't like that. <laughs> which has, and then I say, okay, Donald, listen to what you just talked about with these four truths. You know, how would you apply the four truths this very moment? And part of me says, don't talk about that. I just want it to go away. <laughs> right? That's, that's our conditioning, right? That's our conditioning. So just get this out of here. Nope. Nope, sorry, you have to practice. Or, or you don't have to, but practice would be wise. And so then can I be with that sensation? First truth, just to feel it. Second truth, to notice how there's some contraction. And third truth, is there something I can let go, just to let go into the awareness of that experience? And I think very similar, maybe, with any of our own uh, examples of suffering that we might have come up with or difficulty. Again, some easier, some harder. But I think the essence of the practice is something like that. Can I let go into awareness? Can I let go of my contraction in that experience? Yeah. Well, that's a, thank you, Denise. Very natural segue. Just in closing, <laughs> I'd like to talk a little bit about the fourth truth and about how to do it practically and then and give more attention to that next time as well. So he, he, he did, you know, in... in so many, of his, so many of his talks, how do we... He saw mindfulness as a primary tool. I mean, a lot of times he just said, let go. You know, and sometimes we say, see if you can let go of your contraction, and if you can't let go, then let be. Sometimes we use that language, that we can't sometimes let go of our contracting, but we can sometimes uh, just say, okay, this is happening, I can't let go of it, but I can be aware of it. And so I think awareness is the primary tool. But the Buddha also you know, gave this map of the um, Eightfold Path, which we'll look at in more detail next time, where he said, here's a very practical path to enact this transformation. And he said, so he said that the first is the right understanding, which for him was especially about understanding the nature of these other truths, understanding that there is suffering, that there is grasping, and can we let go of that? And so right understanding is really the starting point. It's like, can I go into my acupuncturist's office and have that framework? I'm going to apply this. That's right understanding. It's also the second is right intention, is to have both the understanding and the willingness to put into practice. Then the third through the fifth are more everyday life supports for our um, transformative process, which he talked about in terms of right speech, right livelihood, and right action. And so under each of those, there are all sorts of ways to do it. And then lastly, there were three of the last three steps have to do with meditation. He talked about that as mindfulness, developing what he called right mindfulness, or we could say wise mindfulness, right concentration, and then right effort. Right mindfulness being this ability to be present with what's happening in various ways. Right Concentration being having enough awareness so that we can actually go deep enough so we don't get knocked around so much. That's very, very crucial for a lot of this. And then right effort, which uh, 
often is not so well understood. Right effort is especially the effort to develop positive qualities and let go of the un, of, of unskillful qualities. And so that might be where a lot of the actual practices of letting go, of letting be, and so forth would fit under, under wise effort, which is, which is in the last group there. So maybe to close, we can ask, um, how might we bring this practice more into our lives? How might we bring it into this difficult, challenging situation, which we might have identified in our, our own quiet reflection? And how can we use this, these four truths, this teaching of the four truths, as a way to help us focus to carry out this transformation? As, as he says, maybe we can go about our lives remembering the elephant's footprint. <laughs> Remembering that uh, it's a very simple model. It's a a very elegant model. Just to be able to notice what's happening in terms of a difficulty, to look for the cause, to see if there's a way to access the, the peace or freedom, and if there's not, at least to know that that's a possibility, and then how to practically act in a given situation. So this is the very simple model that we're, as it were, bequeathed by by tradition and that we, I think, for me, I would say have, I think maybe I could speak for many of us, have the good fortune to come, come um, across in our lives because it really is very different than what I was brought up with and that what many of us were brought up with where, where happiness was a matter of, you know, arranging our lives, manipulating our lives so as to maximize the pleasant and, and have as few unpleasant experiences as possible. And some of that was seen to just be a matter of luck. You know, this happens to you, bad luck. This happens to you, good luck. And so I think this teaching gives us a sense in which we, in some ways, in giving up dependence on the externals, in a way we have more, we might say, more control over the externals. Interesting paradox. So I'll stop there. We can open this up to um, our own further exploration. So thank you.